Our Father, we pray that you would open up our eyes to understand the truth of your word. We thank you for dear servants of old who has suffered and have given expression to that suffering. Help us, O Lord. Help us to understand what you would have for us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't have to tell you that suffering is hard, but the life that we live in has moments of tremendous difficulty. Suffering can change a person's perception of life. Suffering can change the way a person views God. Maybe you know someone who have changed the way they believe because of what has happened in their life. A rather familiar example, maybe you will recognize this example, a certain Jewish rabbi tells of his life, how he used to believe in God, how he used to believe in the goodness of the world, and how he spent most of his time helping other people. He had a son who was diagnosed with a disease that brought on rapid aging. His son would not live much beyond the teenage years. Of course, this news devastated the rabbi and his wife. It did not make sense in light of what they believed about God and the world. He writes, I'd been a good person. I tried to do what was right in the sight of God. And he felt this deep, aching sense of unfairness. It's not fair. Their child did not deserve this. He was an innocent child. Why did he have to suffer? This event destroyed their view of God. They had believed that God was an all-wise, all-powerful parent figure who would treat them as their earthly parents treated them. He would discipline them regularly but firmly. He would protect them from being hurt, and he would reward them by seeing that they got what they deserved in life. This event changed their view of God. They could no longer believe that God was both all-powerful and all-good. If God was both all-powerful and all-good, this tragedy would not have happened They felt they had to choose between a God who is either all-powerful and not all-good or a God who is all-good but not all-powerful. And they came to the conclusion that they believed in a God who is all-good. He wants the good things for us, but he is limited. Limited in what he can do for us. Limited in how he can protect us. Bad things happen to good people. Maybe you recognize the title of this book. There's many things that we could talk about in terms of the way they were perceiving the world and the way they were perceiving God that we would have issues with. But the point, the point here is suffering can change a person's view of the world. God, to them, now has... No control over everything. He cannot stop these bad things from happening. He is not in control of the events of this life. It changed their view of God. It changed their relationship with God. It changed the way they perceive the world. How we respond to suffering is extremely important. 
It's hard to know how to respond to suffering, isn't it? How would you respond if Job was your friend? What would you say to him after he has lost everything? Everything except his life. Suffering is such a debilitating experience that it turns a a person's world upside down. And so how we respond to it is extremely significant. And the reason our response is important is because it touches a basic question that chapters 1 and 2 of Job has raised. The question is this, is God worthy of our worship only because of the good things he gives us? That's the charge of Satan against Job. He only loves you because you've blessed him so much. Take away those things and he'll curse you to your face. Of course, that's a challenge of God's character. The way people respond to suffering may reveal their own view of life and God. We've already examined Job's response, initial response to his suffering. That's in chapters 1 and 2. We might call that patiently submitting to suffering. Job accepts the tragedies that have come into his life in chapters 1 and 2. He submits to God's sovereignty by worshiping God. He says we come into this world with nothing. Everything that we have is really undeserved because we start with nothing. We take nothing with us. So why should we not expect, Job says, to receive both blessing and adversity from the hand of God? That's his initial response. He worships. And we are reminded twice that Job did not charge God with wrong, nor did he sin in his response. Then we have the response of Job's wife. Verse 9, his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Now, it's hard to evaluate his wife's response because we cannot hear the tone in her voice. And many times the tone in the voice is what really makes the comment, right? Does she see his great suffering and is compassionate in her response? Thinking... Oh, he's suffering so much, there's just got to be a way to end it. Or is there a tone of scorn in her response because she thinks Job is a hypocrite and blames him for her loss? You have to remember, she has lost almost as much as Job has lost. She's lost her possessions, her position, her wealth, which was Job's wealth, her children. She's lost as much as Job I would describe her response to suffering as panicked pity. Panicked pity. When you lose everything, you lose that source of security because now your life is in chaos and it can cause people to experience this sense of panic about life so that they say things that they might not say in normal circumstances. They say desperate things. The desperate thing that the wife says is, Job, why don't you just curse God and get it over with? Curse God and die. You're suffering so terribly. Wouldn't it be better if you were dead? I feel so bad for you. Anything to end the suffering, that's a pity part. The panic part is you say desperate things. The pity part is just just get it over with. I feel so bad that you're suffering so much. Before we're too hard on Job's wife, we need to remind ourselves that many of us have done this very thing, probably. 
Have you not felt insecure and blurted out something that you wish you had not said? Because you panicked? Job's response to his wife recognizes that she speaks out of desperation. He says to her in verse 10, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. He doesn't call her foolish. He says, you speak your words as are the words of a foolish woman. And he calls her to a better perspective, a better way of life. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. If Job's friends, who we're going to talk about here in just two seconds, if Job's friends had understood that Job himself spoke many times out of desperation, the book of Job may not have been written. The friend's first response, however, is good. We get their response at the end of chapter 2, verses 11 and following. Uh, We'll pick it up here at the end of verse 11. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their clothes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was great. Their purpose for coming to Job is to offer him sympathy and comfort. They accomplish this purpose in a number of ways. They identify with Job in his suffering by their pronounced expressions of sorrow. They they weep together. They tear their robes. They throw dust on their heads. They, They go through these actions of mourning just as Job has done. They sit with Job on the ground for seven days. They are with him in his suffering. They are there at the ash heap, if you remember. He's at the ash heap. He's at the garbage dump. They don't try to avoid him. They don't turn away from him when they see his horrible physical condition. They're not ashamed to be with him. And it's remarkable they don't say a word for seven days. Can you imagine sitting with someone for seven days and not saying a word? It's foreign to us because we control situations by what we say. We have to say something. We speak out of the fear of the situation, but that's not the first response of the friends. No pious platitudes that, Job, it's going to be all right. No artificial words of comfort that, Job, you must be special for God to have brought this upon you. No panicked words that feel the need to defend God. No skeptical, questioning words concerning the reason for Job's suffering, at least not yet. That comes, actually, later, but but not yet. And so we need to learn from these friends. Silence is itself an act of submission because it's an acknowledgement that we don't have all the answers. Many times we have no answers. We don't know why. Silence acknowledges the mystery of God's sovereignty, that we don't understand the events of this world, that we don't comprehend the ways of God's Sovereignty. And so they kept quiet. Not a word 
for seven days. This is a recognition that there are times when people need space. There are times when people need to process, if you will, to work through. When, when something really bad happens, they're not in a position many times to hear truth, like all things work together for good. But maybe in time they'll get to the point where they will again affirm that. But, but Job is not ready right now to hear those words. Proverbs 15.23 says, A word in season, how good it is. A word spoken in the right context at the right time is a great blessing. But the contrast is also true. A word spoken at the wrong time can bring difficulty. And so their first response of silence is really beneficial. And it's beneficial to Job because I think it gives Job the space to begin speaking as he does in chapter 3. The silence and sympathy of the friends allow Job the confidence to finally say something. And what he says in chapter 3 is really a bombshell. Significant changes take place in chapter 3. We leave behind the story of chapters 1 and 2 and we now begin poetry. So we leave behind narrative, we begin poetry. We leave behind uh, the story and now we enter a, a world of dialogue. We leave behind the divine perspective of chapters 1 and 2 and we are left with chapters 3 and following with only a human perspective. We leave behind a patient, submissive Job, and we enter the world of a persevering but protesting Job. And that's what we see in chapters 3 and following as Job begins this dialogue with his friends. A persevering but protesting Job. In fact, as we read chapter 3, verse 1, we're probably rather shocked because there's been a theme in chapters 1 and 2. It's been stated by Satan twice. It's been stated by Job's wife once. If you take away his possessions, if you take away his health, he will curse you to your face. Job's wife says, Job, get it over with. Curse God and die. And so we then see in chapter 3, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed. And we say, uh-oh. Oh, no. What is going on here in chapter 3? Well, chapter 3 is composed of a curse, chapters, the first 10 verses of chapter 3, and then a lament, which is chapters, uh, verses 11 through 26. It's clear Job is wrestling with this situation, but we need to see what does he actually curse. It says he cursed the day of his birth. Notice how he does this in chapter 3. Verse 4, let that day be darkness. Verse 5, let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Verse 9, let the stars of its dawn be dark. In Genesis chapter 1, God declares, let there be light. And Job, in essence, says, let there be darkness in reference to his birthday. God created the stars in Genesis 1, and Job calls for the stars to be dark. Job calls for the powers of death to overtake his birthday. The deep darkness of verse 5 is the word shadow of death, and he calls upon those. This is uh, verses uh, 8 
7 and 8, he calls upon those who have the supposed ability to curse. He calls upon those to offer a curse against the day of his birth. And in the second part of verse 4, he says, may God above not seek that day. In other words, God, withdraw your providential care from that day so that it would not exist. Job curses an event in the past that can't be changed. It's not a real curse. It's a parody of a curse. Because you can't change it. It's already done. He's already here. But he uses this language to express that he wished he had never been born. That's what he's saying. I wished I had never been born. Because if I had not been born, I would not be experiencing this suffering. The lament in verses 11 through 26 is both similar to the laments in the Psalms, but it's also different from the laments in the Psalms. Laments ask God a lot of questions. Questions are not always wrong. The lament psalms are full of questions. They plead with God to deliver the psalmist. They express confidence that God has heard the prayer, that he will answer the plea. But Job's lament is different. He does not call on God to deliver him. The why questions in Job's lament that begin with verse 11 are a continuation of the I wish I had not been born theme of verses 1 through 10. Look at verse 11. Why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. Verse 16, the same question. And then in verse 20, he asks, Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul? Why am I alive? Why did I not die at birth? Why do I experience light when the darkness of death would be better? Job even longs for death and would rejoice if he could find the grave. The lament psalms long for God's deliverance. They wait for it. Job longs for death more than many hunt for hidden treasure. In verse 23, he asks a similar question. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? If your way is hidden, you've lost your way. You've lost the meaning of life. You've lost the purpose in life. That's what Job is experiencing. What purpose is there to this suffering? And notice it is beginning to affect his view of God. Verse 23, whom God has hedged in. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? Now, if you remember, which you probably don't, Satan used the very same concept, hedged in. Satan said to God, look, God, Job loves you because you've blessed him so much, because you've hedged him in, because you've protected him, because you don't allow anything bad to happen to him. No wonder he loves you. Now Job says, God has hedged me in. I feel trapped. I feel trapped in this situation, and I feel trapped in this situation by God himself. I cannot escape 
because God has hedged me in. Finally, his lament ends with a self-centered focus. If you look at verses 24 through 26 and notice all of the personal pronouns of my and I, it's all about Job. It's all about his suffering. My sighing, my groanings, I fear, I dread, I am not at ease, nor am I quiet, I have no rest, but trouble comes. Suffering has even begun, has begun to affect Job. In chapters 1 and 2, life and all we have are gifts from God and we should expect nothing, but now Job despairs of life. In chapters 1 and 2, God is the sovereign Lord of life, but now God has trapped Job in his suffering. God is a problem, as as he's perceived as a problem, as Job begins now to wrestle with God. In chapters 1 and 2, there is a wide view of his suffering. There is the worship of God. Life was not just about him and his suffering, but now Job is self-focused. He can't see beyond his suffering. So what has happened? What has happened between the Job of chapters 1 and 2 And the Job of chapter 3. How do we explain the change from a patient, submissive Job to a persevering, protesting Job? Suffering can wreak havoc on a person's perception of life and their perception of God. There are several things that contribute to this. The pain of suffering can cause a person to focus on themselves and to lose sight of the broader picture where you become just enamored with your situation. The despair of suffering can cause a person to lose any sense of meaning in life. What's the use? It's hard to see any good purpose in it. It's why the psalmists talk about being in the pit because when you're in the pit, all you see is that wall in front of you. You're in the pit. You turn this way, you turn that way, you turn around. It's just that wall, that pit. You don't see the broader horizon. You don't have that broader perspective. And it can cause psychological fear to become bigger than life. All of us at one point or another have that sense of dread that something bad may happen to us. This has overwhelmed Job. Chapter 3, verse 25 mentions that the one thing I fear comes upon me and what I dread befalls me. And so we see when a person becomes obsessed with their situation, when they've lost the purpose of life, when dread overwhelms them, it makes sense that they would struggle with their perception of life and their perception of God. It's normal from a human standpoint to wonder what's going on. Why is this happening? Now, the the next response we're not going to get into, but if you continue to read in the book of Job, Job's friends do respond to Job, and sadly, they accuse him of sinning to bring on his suffering. And they begin to argue that your suffering, Job, is a result of something you have done, some sin you have committed. And they try in many, many different ways for like 20 chapters to convince him that he sinned. 
Now, we know that that's not accurate because we have chapters 1 and 2. We know that Job is innocent, that Job is an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Job is not suffering because of some sin that he has committed, but that's, that will be the debate. And there's a key distinction that will help you understand the book of Job. Job is not suffering because of his sin. The friends are going to accuse him of suffering because of his sin. But it's very clear, Job is not suffering because of his sin. So when you get to chapter 42, verse 7, God is going to say to Job and the friends, he's going to say to the friends, Job spoke about me what is right, but you didn't. And that's referring to the main issue. Job is not suffering because of his sin. And the friends tried to convince him that he was suffering because of his sin. And God said to friends, you are wrong. And we know that from chapters 1 and 2. However, once Job is in this context of suffering, what he says about God crosses the line at times. He will call into question God's justice. For that, he will repent in chapter, beginning of chapter 42. It's helpful to keep those two situations distinct. He's not suffering because of sin, but once he is in that situation of suffering, he does say some things that are not accurate, that are wrong about God. And if you can keep those two situations separate, you will understand better, I think, what's going on in the book of Job. All right, so what does all this mean as we bring this to a close? What does this mean? A key question is, if you have a friend who finds himself in this kind of situation and is saying similar things that Job is saying in chapter 3, how should you respond to that friend? If suffering comes to someone you know, give them room to express their questions. Give them room to express their longing, their feelings, their exasperation. Allow them room to speak what's on their mind. If Job's friends, and Job recognizes this in one of his speeches, if Job's friends would have just recognized that he spoke out of desperation, that he spoke words of exasperation, how different it would have been. Don't parse all their words. Be there for them. Sit with them. Thoughtful silence is really, really helpful. Give God time to work to shape their thinking because they are wrestling with the meaning of life and they're wrestling with where is God in all of this chaos and hardship? In time, they will again be able to affirm the goodness of God. In time, they will again be able to confess the great truth that yes, God is on our side. In fact, point them, point them to the one person who has faced intense suffering and excruciating pain without sin. Point them to the one who learned obedience from his suffering, as Hebrews 5.8 says. Point them to the one who is tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Point them to the one who wrestled with God's will for his life, which included 
death on a cross, sweating great drops of blood in his anguish. Remind them of Hebrews 5, 7, when you get a chance to speak. Then in the day, Hebrews 5, 7, remarkable verse about Jesus. In the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. This is according to his human nature. He offered up prayers and loud cries to the one who was able to save him from death. And he came to the conclusion, not my will, but your will be done there in the Garden of Gethsemane as he faced the most horrible death that we can ever imagine. And he faced the wrath of God because he's suffering for our sins. Point them to the one who himself experienced abandonment by the Father as he cried on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Point them to the one who is our great high priest and able to sympathize with our weaknesses, who understands our suffering, who is the source of our salvation. Point them to the one who takes upon himself all of our grief, all of our pain, all of our suffering, all of our sickness. And gives us hope that one day, may not be till he comes, but one day, suffering will be over. And because we are in Christ... Our suffering has purpose and meaning. Suffering had purpose and meaning for Jesus. It was God's method to bring about our salvation. His suffering had purpose and meaning, and we are in Christ. Our suffering has purpose and meaning. We may not always be able to explain what that is, but it has purpose and meaning. And just as Christ came through his humiliation and his suffering to glory, Will it not be the same for us? Because we are in Christ. It will be. It will be the same for us. It's hard to know what to say to someone who has just experienced tragedy. Silence is golden, and Jesus is our great high priest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We live in a hopeless world. We live in a world that many ways ignores death. We try to avoid it at all costs. many ways ignores suffering. We want to hear the health and wealth gospel. We don't want to hear that the way they treated our Master Jesus Christ is the way they will treat us. We don't want to hear that this world is a fallen world. And there are difficult things that come into the lives of God's people. But, Father, we must hear those things. We must look reality in the face. (coughs) And as we look reality in the face, Father, we trust. We trust 
in you, we trust in Christ. <coughs> we thank you for what he's done for us. We don't just glibly say that he is the answer. He is the answer. But when we see how he does come into our dark world, our sinful world, our suffering world, we are thankful that you're not a God who is just a transcendent God, a God of mystery, a God of sovereignty. Yes, you are that, but you are a God who is imminent, a God who walks with us through, through our suffering. And so fill us today with that hope and that confidence, because one day, one day all the troubles of this world, one day all the difficulties of this world, one day all the hardships of this world will give way to the glory of being in your presence, your presence for all eternity, and our lives will be transformed. Thank you for that hope. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.